This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I want to read you something, then I'm going to bring in someone to talk about this, but I want to read you something. This comes from The Spectator, August 30 of last year, so still recent. First, it's by uh, Matthew Van Donchen of The Spectator. Let me read you the first three lines. Anonymous, self-styled gentrification opponents are taking credit, taking credit for a summer vandalism spree targeting lower city redevelopment efforts and urging others to join in. A post last week on anarchistnews.org and the local anarchist blog, the Hamilton Institute, claims responsibility for a string of vandalism and graffiti tags over the summer. Those included broken windows at new Barton Street restaurants, the Heather and the Butcher and the Vegan, glued locks at a Westdale real estate office, the acclimation condo site on James Street and Co-Motion's downtown office, as well as damaged security cameras at the former Hendry's Shoes building. It goes on and on. Point is, we have had an outpouring of support for the Lock Street businesses that had this happen to them on the weekend. I don't remember any rallies when rocks were being thrown or bricks were being thrown through Barton store windows. I don't remember any rallies for that. I don't remember any hashtag love for Barton social media things popping up. I don't remember any big time politicians and party leaders showing up to sign plywood window coverings for that. I don't remember any of this stuff for Barton Street. Makes me wonder, why does Lock Street matter and Barton Street doesn't? We say we love Hamilton. We say we love the people of Hamilton. We love the businesses of Hamilton, except we're only showing love for part of Hamilton, which happens to be a hot area of Hamilton. I don't know if that's it, but why does one matter and the other not? Krista Boyer is a real estate agent and a founder of Try Hamilton, which gives tours of real estate for people who are coming into the city. Uh, she has run into this before. She is not new to the, well, to this stuff. Krista, thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, let's start with that, and then I'll get on to your experience. Why does Lock Street matter and Barton Street doesn't seem to matter as much? Well, you know, I, I would say both entirely do matter. And the difference between the two is the the manner in which they attack the areas. With, with Barton Street, it was, it was more laid out in piecemeal type of work where they were doing it, you know, one one event after after event after event. So, of course, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't get the type of attention as Lock Street did considering it was done in that blitz-style type of attack. So I wouldn't hold, um, you know, the community responsible to say that, you know, why aren't we paying attention? It has nothing really to do that other than, you know, so many people weren't aware of this group and weren't aware of what's happened on Burn because it was happening in broken measures. You've been talking about this, though, for a while now. We have. So I, outside of the community, I would say, though, the city and Hamilton Police, absolutely, they should be ha- held accountable uh, as far as having had prior knowledge to these events prior to Lock Street and as well as the fact that we have been identifying to the police and to the city who we believe or who we know to be responsible for what's taken place. That's and, and go back to Barton for a second. This is not a one-time thing. There are restaurants there that have had this happen repeatedly to them now. Yes, yes. They're, the Heather, uh, most specifically, has been targeted over and over again. Uh, and much of that had to do with the fact that Matt and his wonderful wife, Meg, came from the city of Toronto and decided to plant roots in Barton and we're met with uh, a lot of pushback from this organization. 
So I will take your your explanation for why the Lock Street, and certainly you're, you're absolutely correct, the Lock Street situation is different as far as it's one big group as opposed to sporadic. And yet people have known about this Barton thing, and, and for whatever reason it hasn't gained any traction, whether you say with the police or with the public. There seems to have been very little traction as far as taking this seriously. Uh, agreed, absolutely, and that's entirely been our experience throughout. I mean, there have been times where... I will credit Hamilton Police to say that, you know, I had two events, the first of which we had 40 protesters showed up, and Hamilton Police was very reactionary and very responsive on that day. And I thank them for that. And then for our second event, we did notice that we had police protection, you know, set in a perimeter for that day's event because, you know, I had to dress with them my concerns and fears that we might see a second retaliation uh, which did not occur we had a lovely lovely event but outside of that as far as proactive and ongoing uh, planning as far as how do we negate this how do we manage this issue I have seen nothing from them so from a community perspective we know now, everyone is aware, have seen the videos and everything about it, Lock Street, and we want to support Lock Street. This is not about negative on Lock Street whatsoever, but when this whole picture starts to come together, sh- should there be more being done for all kinds of people around the city who have gone through this? Should, like Some of the businesses on Lock Street, they're being wonderfully supported, and that's terrific. We're glad that people are supporting these businesses that have had this happen. But what about the Heather? Like, Is there anybody rising up to say, you know, we got to do the same for them that is happening here because they're going through the same thing? Absolutely. And you know what? If anything... Uh, after the incidences on Lock Street on Saturday, I see this as an opportunity for an already great community to come together to focus on on this and work together as a community to, you know, support everyone. And now knowing, and that's been part of the problem, you know, people haven't been aware of what's been happening on Barton Street. And now that people, you know, they see full well what's been occurring and or are, you know, they're being educated on it uh, throughout the last few days and days that are coming, they'll be educated even further, you know, this presents itself as that opportunity for us to work together to face this challenge. Real estate agent Krista Boyer, she, by the way, just uh, so I can give you a little plug here, uh, she's with Marseilles in Hamilton. You can find her online if you uh, if you want to talk to her. Y- your story, by the way, people can read your story online as well. You've gone through an awful lot with this, and uh, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes tonight to talk to us. Oh, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Hamilton has a terrific, tremendous, long, rich history. It's not surprising. We have been, well, we've been a city since 1846. We have people were living here even before then. And any place that's been around for that long is going to have stories. And stories involve people. And people use stuff. And stuff can become historical artifacts. Well, thankfully... There are folks in this area who have been on top of things enough over the years to gather some of that stuff and hold on to it. Pieces of our history that are now in safekeeping that otherwise, who knows where they might have been. Question though now is, what do you do with all this stuff? There's a terrific piece in the paper today by Mark McNeil. It's called A Home for the Story of Hamilton. Raising the idea of creating a home, namely a museum, to display some of this, because right now it's all just tucked away where nobody can see it. Ian Kerr-Wilson is the manager of Heritage Resource Management for the City of Hamilton. He joins you now. Ian, thanks for doing this today. Uh, good evening. How are you? I'm great. Um, when I read this story, 
it got me wondering how much stuff, and when I talk about stuff, I mean these kind of things, how much stuff do we actually have? All right, you can call it stuff. We call it stuff all the time. <laughs> um, yes, technically an artifact. Um, well, uh, the, the city of Hamilton, um, as, a, as a group, we have about 60,000 artifacts in all, um, plus um, probably um, a similar number of archaeological specimens and, and archives. Um, that's the kind of number. Um, now, most of that is, um, is on display in our historic houses, Dundurn, Battlefield, Whitehurn, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and then uh, the rest of it is um, uh, in some of our exhibit galleries and some of it's scattered around the city, and um, uh, the rest of it's in storage. How far back? You know, 60,000, that's a lot. And as you say, a lot of it is in, you could go to Dundurn and see. I mean, it's not like it's all in storage, but how, no. far, how far back would it go? What would be the earliest things that we would have had collected? Oh, we have archaeological specimens that are probably in the seven to nine thousand years ago. Oh, oh, I, I, I was thinking like beginning of the city. You're going way beyond that. Oh, oh yes. Well, I mean, humans have have been here in Hamilton, changing the landscape, building lives. You know, pretty much since the end of the Ice Age. Um, and uh, you know, the so the collection we have, you know, <laughs> starts there, and and then uh, comes up, uh, you know, well into the twentieth century. Now, I do have to ask this only because I was once upon a time in, uh, I won't say which museum, it was not one of yours, but in a museum in this area, and I went to the storage room, and it looked like Al Capone's vault, at least as Geraldo Rivera (laughs) wished it had looked like. Uh, Is all of this stuff properly cataloged and organized? In other words, do we actually know what we have in storage right now? Yeah, um, uh, very much. Over the last um, six, eight years, we've done a major overhaul of our uh, of our records keeping, um, so that we have essentially a state of the state of the art uh, collections, uh, computerized collections management system. So we, um, you know, we still have a bit of a backlog uh, of stuff we haven't transferred, but about ninety percent of it or so is now cataloged and. Um, um, well, it should be finishing up the backlog in a couple of years. But generally speaking, if you say, you know, where is this or that, we, we can lay our hands on it. And probably you, there's not a ton of surprises left of something. You're not going to find the bridge work from the first mayor of Hamilton or something tucked away. Like, uh, the, you know what's <laughs> what's in there. Well, you know, there are there are weird stories of museums that find things oh, like that. And, oh, and, yes. Um, but that stuff, you know what the things are that are there, the important things. Yes. Um, they say we still have a... Um, we still have some backlog to go through, but the uh, we've seen pre- we've seen pretty much all of it. We've looked at it. We just haven't done all necessarily done all the um, mechanical cataloging. It, it um, does sound like though there is a lot in that catalog in that collection. There is a lot of two things: really cool, some really cool things, but also some really valuable things in there. Yeah, you know the 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 great majority of the of the uh, material isn't what you'd call. Um, you know, valuable in a monetary sense. I mean, you know, the the uh, you know the, the 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 furniture, for example, you know, is. I mean, it's nice. It's you know, it's an antique, but it wouldn't be worth a huge amount of money. Where where its re- its real value is is, you know, this piece of furniture was made in this uh, woodworking furniture shop on Barton Street. That you know this and that that existed for this period of time, and this is the product of of Hamiltonian's work, and that's where the real value is. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, when we have, you know, the, um, you know, the mayor's chair from the old city hall, you know, that's a pretty amazing story. Um, and you know, it's incredibly valuable. Um, 
Take it on Antiques Roadshow, and you're going to find some money. Um, well, in a few <laughs> cases, yeah, but in, in most cases, which you know, you, you know, from Antiques Roadshow, right? They always say, "Well, it's not worth a lot," but there's this great story. Um, yeah, most of our stuff comes into that latter category. It's the sort of uh, the great stories you can tell with, and that's why we acquire a lot of this material. It's not. It's not for the monetary value. It's so we can use it to tell stories about Hamilton and Hamiltonians and, and sort of share how Hamilton came to be the Hamilton we see. So it's a, uh, they're kind of they're, they're tools for us, tools for storytelling. Now, there is, though, if I understand the story correctly, at least one original AY, or, uh, AJ Casson piece, an original group of sevens. So that's yes, going to be is. worth something. Oh yes, oh yes. I, I, I don't say there's <laughs> there's nothing in there that's uh, that's valuable, but uh, uh, usually the as I say, we don't acquire for monetary reasons. We acquire for storytelling. That sure. particular item was the with the gift to the city, um, and that's why why we have it. Um, and we have a, a you know a number of art pieces that were commissioned or were gifts to the city. But a lot of it is of civic value more than anything oh, else. Yeah. And, yeah. and and. Is this, before, I've got to take a break in just a second here, but sure. is the place where they are stored, is this a place that is designed for this? In other words, are they are they in a place where they will be preserved, or is this just an empty building that we have, and it's, well, we hope. Uh, no, no, it's it's uh, it's very much, uh, um, now, nowadays the, the environmental controls and the storage facilities and that are very much, you know, up to industry standard. Now, to be honest, it started out as just a plain area warehouse, but we converted it to uh to that purpose so it's a it's um you know it's it can it, it's actually a pretty cool place if you mentioned the newspaper article and you saw some of the pictures it's uh um it's very much where you would you know what you'd expect uh, you know a good quality museum to have its storage in you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml Chatting with Ian Kerr Wilson, the manager of Heritage Resource Management for the city of Hamilton, about the thousands of items that Hamilton owns from our past that are some of them in storage, some on display, but what do we do with them? And Ian, in the story that Mark McNeil wrote in the spec, people can read it at thespec.com, they can grab a copy of the paper. One of the things that struck me from one of the lines was that um, you guys don't intentionally ask people for historic items anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. The um, we uh, we're the city operates nine museums and all uh, from Dundurn to Battlefield to Griffin House and a few others. And so what we do is we collect uh, specifically related to uh, those museums, the, their reasons for existence, what we call the mandate. So you know if it's Dundurn, then we collect stuff that's related to. Uh, Dundurn. If it's field coat, then we're collecting material which is related to the history of Ancaster. So um, uh, we only collect material that is directly tied to those mandates. And at the same time, uh, you know, space is at a premium. So, uh, you know, if we're going to acquire something, it has to be something that's really going to strengthen the collection, that's really going to be a... uh, um, uh, a real addition because it costs money to to store and to take care of it. And but uh, I have to believe that there are people who, when mom dies or grandma dies or whatever, and they go through the house, that you or someone would get a call saying, you know, we just oh, yeah. did the attic, and I think we got something here. Yeah, we, and we probably get a couple of calls uh, like that a week, and um, we take them very seriously, and we don't just sort of, you know, say sorry. Um, you know, we have a conversation with the. We generally get pictures. We have a look at them, and if. And if they meet the, one of the mandates of one of the museums, then we uh, we take it to an, an acquisitions committee, which is 
a mixture of well I'm on it and you know collections manager and some curators and things and we we collectively make a decision about it um, and where we say well no I don't think we can take it we will work with the individual to find another home because as uh, as one of our curators say you know in many cases it's an artifact it's just not our artifact it belongs in a different museum not necessarily one of ours so you know we take that kind of the importance of having the stuff preserved for the public seriously and enough to say if we won't take it we're going to we'll, we'll help you find some other one somebody else who will i don't know if you've ever given any thought to this but um is there a holy grail for the city of hamilton an artifact that you all just dream will land in your lap someday uh, oh there there are many many <laughs> uh that fit that category uh uh, anything written by Sir Alan McNabb uh, would certainly meet that category. Um, um, I would love to, if we could ever find someone who ever wrote about participating in the Battle of, uh, of Stony Creek who was actually there. Uh, there are a few of those, but I'd love to see a few more. Um, uh, there are uh, um, a lot of industrial artifacts um, that are probably still around in people's garages that relate to the the industrial history of Hamilton that we'd love to um love to find out about. Oh no, it's a long long list. You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> I'm a curator, so uh you know. <laughs> well, the other, I, I, I want to acquire everything. Well, the other part about this is that this has all led to questions and it's been discussed before about whether or not we should be having a we've got museums plural yeah. in the city, but yeah. a central Hamilton museum What's your thought on that? Could it work? Uh, you know, um, the, as uh, you probably know, uh, Councillor um, Chad Collins is bringing forward a motion that's going to sort of direct us to look into that. We're right now in the midst of a of a, what is basically a long-term management plan for our existing museums the city runs, uh, and we're looking at that in the long term. And he's, he's going to be bringing forward a motion that's going to direct us to include looking at a city of Hamilton museum, as you say, sort of a singular place as part of that. Um, so we'll be looking at the feasibility of that. Um, uh, and I, you know, I don't, don't want to sort of over anticipate what the results of that investigation would be. Um, there, um, there are a lot of civic museums, a lot of county museums in the province. Most counties have a, have a singular museum, uh, like Huron County, or I'm sure many of people know, um, um, uh, know of some others, um, and uh, there is also in a lot of places in in Ontario. Uh, it's much like Hamilton; they have a a series of smaller sites scattered around the city that sort of collectively tell the story. Um, Ottawa's like that, um, and so there's a couple of different ways you can go, uh, a couple of different approaches, and um, and what's going to be most important is going to be talking to Hamiltonians about what they want and what they think would do the best job of telling the story or or something that you know you you mentioned you know will people show up well let's go find out let's go talk to people about that yeah because we've had a checkered history we i mean we have with museums we have some that do well and we have some that have i mean i look at the now i know it wasn't a hamilton museum but the canadian football hall of fame and museum Mm -hmm. uh that didn't work uh after the first few years and yet dundurn castle gets what sixty-five thousand people a year something like that yeah yeah and uh and and uh, we've been we've been growing pretty rapidly, and and that you know I think 
that speaks to the fact that we work fairly hard to tell tell stories so that the question you know goes with that what stories aren't being told that need to be told you know what are we not doing right now and i think that's where when we go to the public and start having some sort of pretty deep conversations that's the stuff that's going to come forward Ian Kerr-Wilson, Manager of Heritage Resource Management with the City of Hamilton. And go read the story. A Home for the Story of Hamilton is at thespec.com. Ian, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let me bring Don Robertson in from the Dundas Real McCoys from Calm Choice Realty in Dundas. Ever had a brick thrown through your window? Just when I ducked. <laughs> no. Good, good. Let's keep it that way. Yeah. Uh, a lot of stuff to talk about this week. I, I wasn't even going to ask you about this, but I'm going to because we've talked about it before. Did you watch the outdoor game, the Washington-Toronto outdoor game? Saturday night? Yeah. Uh, eight minutes of it. Why only eight minutes? Bored. Because of the game or because of just... Well, it, did, it didn't. It, to me, it didn't look like Washington were playing against anybody. <laughs> Leafs look all look like Casper the Ghost. They they were pretty hard on to the spot. white. Isn't that brilliant? All white on white. White on white. Yeah, yep. white on white. It's um, you know what? But I did read the accounting in the in the uh, paper the the next day. It didn't sound like the Leafs showed up anyway. So maybe I was right. Yeah, no, they just had empty uniforms and mannequins. Um, <laughs> I, I I can't believe. Well, I I can believe, but I, it just it stuns me that the NHL continues to just trot out these outdoor games. And I guess they can fill the arena, but it just doesn't seem like anyone else who's not there in person, just doesn't seem anyone else cares. Well, unless they've changed it, I think what happens is the National Hockey League take the revenue from the game and they re- they reimburse the National Hockey, like the, the Washington Capitals, what they would have made on a home game. So it's not like the Capitals are making an extra... Three or four million dollars. Oh yeah, they are because they're selling their new third or fourth or fifth or eighth or tenth right. jersey. But well, that's not, where you get the not, money. They're that's not making. They're, they're not making three or four million. But, but the, the National Hockey League are doing it, and, and I think it's interesting. Uh, went to the New Year's game um, in the big house. Yeah, you froze in Detroit. It, that was really cool. But I think maybe once a year, it's a good idea. That's well, of course it is. Of course it is. That's when it was a good idea. The Oilers it did it. They called it the Heritage Classic. And it was fantastic. And then the Sabres did it with the Penguins, and it was terrific. Yeah. And then I can't remember what the third one was. I think Chicago and Detroit may have been the third one. I can't remember. But it was fantastic. Yeah. And then the NHL said, hey, I got a good idea. Let's have seven of these every week. Yeah. And nobody cares anymore. Well, the novelty's gone. Right? The novelty's gone. And that's it's not the place to watch a hockey game. You're nope. too far away. You nope. can't see the puck. The play isn't that well, good. And I, 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 well, one of the reasons I only watched eight minutes is we played in Stony Creek Saturday night. But when I uh, got to a place to watch it, I wasn't interested. It was the best thing the NHL had come up with in decades as far as ideas for entertainment. And they just squashed it. They absolutely, with greed, just did it too much. And now, if any, the thing that I think some people do is some people will tune in for the first 10 minutes to see the introductions, the players walk out, and, the, and then they're gone. Because why am I watching a bad game from bad camera angles with bad ice? Yeah, it's hard to do well. I mean, they do a pretty good job, but it's hard to do well without the shadows. Um, I was listening to the game. 
when the lights went out. That was maybe I didn't even I wasn't watching, but that sounds to me like it could have been the best part. The best part was listening to listening to Joe Bowen call the lights going out. He'd so. make that. He'd still make it exciting. He did. There is uh, besides hockey. There is uh, there was something going on this weekend that I find it's a puzzling bit of sports, but it gets huge ratings down in the states, and it's a huge talking point, and now gets immense media coverage. That would be the NFL Combine. Which is, I think most people know what that is, but it's a giant fitness test for future NFL players. And they do a bunch of things like run a 40-yard dash and do bench presses and all kinds of stuff. and and See if they can jump over the goalposts. Well, to me, the, the curiosity of this is these are guys who have been in university playing football for three or four years. If you can't tell, if you're a scout and you don't have any idea if the guy's a football player by now, maybe you want to consider a different line of work. Because a guy all of a sudden does a lot of bench presses, but he's a horrible football player, if that convinces you to draft the guy, well, more power to you. I'd rather take the guy that's a football player. Nonetheless, they had the combine this week, and there was one very interesting story. There are some interesting stories, but one in particular, a very interesting story, a guy by the name of Shaquem Griffin. He went to Central Florida. You've probably never, Most people have probably never heard of him. He's a linebacker. Had a great... Well, pretty great. 40 time, 4.38 seconds, good time. And did 20 bench press reps of 225 pounds, which is 20 more than I would do. Um, Probably 21 more than I would do. I would actually slip into the negatives. (laughs) But what makes this story so amazing is that when he was four years old, he had his hand amputated. He has only one hand. Now, he did 20 reps of 225 with With one one hand. hand. He had a prosthetic hand put on so he could hold the bar somehow and push it. But if you're an NFL scout, if you're an NFL general manager, and you're an, and Don, you're in an interesting position to be answering this question, and you can explain why in just a second. You know where I'm going on this. But if you were an NFL general manager who is going to pay millions of dollars to a contract for a guy, and NFL general managers who are using the combine, not just scouting a player's ability, but they want to know every little tiny minute fact. Would you draft a player who had only one hand in a sport that requires tackling? Regardless of what his numbers were, regardless of how he played, if you're an NFL GM, would you draft a one-handed player? I would have to watch him play football. I mean, the holding calls would be down. <laughs> That's true. No. Um, you would have to. Can I? I don't know if we're allowed to laugh at that, is but it, that was very clever. Is, is it too late to say? Can I say that? Um, it would depend on if he could play, right? If you can play the game, and if he's played it at the college level, and you can play, then why not? As you, know. I agree. No, and I agree with you. But I'm saying, if you're holding a combine. Because you're desperately looking for some little nugget that you couldn't find. They could have scouted every player already here, but yet they want them to go through this because they want more information. So yes, I agree with you. If he can play, you would see that on his games. But when it comes to it and it's going to cost you millions of dollars and your reputation as a GM is on the line, are you going to take a chance on that guy? Well, I'll guarantee you at that combine, when Doug Flutie went, he wasn't his vertical jump wasn't going to be that important as short as he was. The fact that he couldn't bench press 225 20 times 
would have absolutely no bearing on whether you want Doug Flutie to play in your football team or not. So it's only relevant to some positions, I would think. I mean, so you get a lineman that can pick up a F-150 pickup t- truck and, you know, move it two feet. I, but if he can't run and he's got no athleticism, why are you doing all the things? But I think you're right. I'd rely on the scouting. I guess it's just another tool. It's, um, you know, they're using so many stats now in every sport that I guess it's a tool they think they've got, and they bring the guys in and they try it. I I, I wouldn't think that's going to determine if a guy goes in the third round or the first round. There, I mean, you you have... And this is a this is part of the reason I brought this up with you. You are in a unique position. You have actually signed a player, yes, to play who had one hand, and he was great. Scott uh, Stafford. Stafford came and played for me twice. Uh, played for three years. Three was, years was on the Allen Cup team, and he was a terrific player. He was a and terrific player, terrific kid. Came, didn't tell me, didn't call and say, Mister Robertson, can I come out and try out for your hockey team? Um, I only have one hand. He just showed up. He called, and I said, well, we're scrimmaging tonight. It's our first workout. We're, we need extra guys. Come on up. He, I come out of the office. He shook my hand, walked on the ice, and and uh, the junior C coach, Mike, said said to me, he says, how'd you get him here? I said, well, I researched. I told him some long story. He said, he called me this afternoon. I said, come for a skate. He said, he's a great player for one hand. I went, are you kidding? So I went out and watched him, and that had no bearing. I got accused of signing him. So that we could say we had a one-handed hockey player, and it was a publicity stunt and everything else. He played with us for three years, and we let him go. The and he was with us last year, so we come back. But the one year he came in on, um, I don't know, it was the first week of February, right after the game, he came in and sat down in the office, and he said, "I need to talk to you guys." I said, "Where are you going?" He said, "Whenever a player does that, you know he's leaving." I said, "Where are you going?" He said, "I'm going to go to Germany." And offered a contract, and, and he, it was his goal from a kid to be the first ever one-handed hockey player to play professional hockey. So that was simple. I mean, but what are you going to tell him? No. <laughs> so we let him go. And over he went and scored a few goals and come back, and that was his stint at pro hockey. But he could play the game. He was as fast as anybody we had, and it really didn't deter him. There was a few situations where he it would have been better if he had a second hand. Like when you're fighting for the puck in the corner, you're trying to hold a guy off. Because the way it worked with him is, and just so people understand, because he didn't just hold the stick with one hand. No. He would take the no- the top of the stick and tuck it into the crook of his... He, he had a, a bit of the lower arm. Yes. Just above and the so, wrist. So it was above the wrist, but and he, he was could born bend, that way. Yeah, he could, he, he could bend his elbow and he could tuck the stick into the crook of his arm. And I remember the first time I saw him... I had to have someone point out which guy he was on the ice because he didn't yep. look—he didn't look different from the other guys when he was playing. But then when someone pointed it out, and with his leverage, because it was tucked into his arm, he could shoot, and he could shoot fine. He could, he shoot. could shoot equally as well as yep. a whole bunch of our players. And the other thing about him was uh, the first time I talked to him, I, I was doing a story on him for the paper, and you know, it's one of those interviews that you're doing that you you don't know the person. So you don't know how he is about this. Different people are different with certain challenges that they have. And so you are tiptoeing a little bit to try and feel him out to see how he is going to be around this. And when you mention 
missing a hand and stuff. And I got to tell you, he had more jokes and more one-liners. He'd make it easy pretty early. He, right off the bat, goes, hey, every time I'm on the ice, my team's shorthanded. That was his, that was his opening salvo, yeah. and it went from there. And that, I mean, that was him. That wasn't me. And it was, but he was, you know, he was great about it, and, and partially because I think he understood that he could play the game. So he was confident enough in himself that he could play so you can make lots of jokes about it and you can have some fun with it. Hockey dressing rooms can be pretty brutal. They can. And was anyone ever rough on him with that? Were there ever any jokes? He was too good. Like he had more jokes than anybody else. We played a game in Aurelia. And it might have been the second game we played and he scored a goal. Comes back to the bench. He says, well, another shorthanded goal. And that's when we all knew it, it was okay. And there's a guy sitting in front of me. He says, we... We weren't shorthanded. <laughs> and I, he, he, he we weren't shorthanded. I said, who said it? Like, you know, I won't tell you exactly. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Do you see who just said that? Like, Staffy scored the goal. Oh, so I go, but a number of our fans. Did that guy get taken off for concussion protocol? <laughs> no, yeah, no. No, it was, and that come up a lot too. So any, but anyway, the, um. The ability for those guys, but he was, I, th- I think the advantage that uh, Staffy had was he was born that way. Like he didn't lose his hand in an accident or for any other reason. He was just born that way. The umbilical, uh, what do you call it? Umbilical that cord? cord had wrapped around his hand. Hand, yeah. And uh, I guess, I mean, I don't know what happened. He, he born in one hand. So he accepted it. It was a goal of his to play pro hockey, and, and he did. And I wouldn't care if we had a combine how high he could jump. I just wanted to watch him play. And I, like you, went out and watched some scrimmage and went, are you kidding me? How does this kid do that? And it comes back to that point, is that I, I watched him play, you watched him play. If you can play the game, you can play the game. But I really, I, I have, I expect that this guy, that this one-handed linebacker, uh, Shaquem Griffin, I expect he will get drafted if he doesn't get drafted, I expect he will get signed by someone as a free agent, but I'm not positive. Only because if you're an NHL, uh, NFL general manager and you've got only a, I think it's seven rounds, a, you only got a few picks and you've got to build your future for your team, boy, you've got to be sure. And these guys are terrified. of The NFL of all leagues is terrified of doing something different. They are terrified of going outside the box. And if I can have a two-handed linebacker instead of a one-handed linebacker, I will take the two-handed. He's not quite as good. Yeah, but he's got two hands. I'm convinced that that's going to be the thought process in some of these places. Well, Stafford went down uh, after one year with us and tried out for a Southern pro team. And he called me and told me he was going. I said, okay, well, give me a call. So he gave me a call. He played an exhibition game. I said, you know, Staffy, they may not keep you for the wrong reasons. He said, well, they knew I only had one hand. Like, you knew exactly what I was talking about. And then um, he said to me, so what do you, why do you say that? And I said, well, I've seen guys that played in that league. You're every bit as good as them and better than a couple that I've seen play in that league. But the States is so much different than us. It might be insurance reasons. It might be risk and liability. And what if you get hurt playing the game? And then, you know, they sue everybody down there. And your lawyer says you didn't, have, you know, they knew you didn't have a hand. You couldn't protect yourself properly. He went, well, I hope that's not the reason. And he came back, and he recited the conversation. He said, "I, based on who they kept and they sent me home, he said I, there was another reason, and it, it may well have been that, which was which was too bad because he's a wonderful young man, and 
he deserved the opportunity. But I, I would hope somebody gives this. If this guy can play, then let him play. If I'm an NFL team and this guy can play, and by all accounts he can, if this guy can play beyond the fact that he should be allowed the opportunity to play, let's be very bottom line and very almost cynical about this. How many shirts could you sell from this guy if he makes your team? I mean, NFL is all about the bottom line. If you have someone who is unique, who is different from the crowd in some way, that can be inspiring, that can be inspirational, if this guy makes your team, he sells you a million shirts. And and that's just the start of, you know, the, the situation. So if he can play, this is where... I don't know what they're going to do with this guy. I don't because, again, I don't see the NFL as being a league that likes to take chances and likes to try new things. They like to stay very much within their box. But if you're a GM and you've got, and you're not sure before the draft is over, I'm telling you, this guy, this guy for himself, for everyone else around him, this could be a glorious opportunity for that team. Some could argue that the NFL let some of their players play in that league without a brain. Some could. I yes. could, I wouldn't make that argument, but there are people out there that have made comments close to that. So well, without well, a brain, only one hand without a brain or with a scrambled brain. Well, there's that. There's those guys too. Perhaps not fully functional. I'm. I can live with it. And the other thing is, here's the thing, and I don't think that Scott Stafford, who played for you, I don't think that he would want this to be said, but it's the reality. When you have a challenge, people will cheer for you even above other people. I think a lot of people, when yep. Stafford was playing, were rooting for him to do well. So he, uh, he, he made it clear he's not a guy, he was not looking for sympathy, and that wasn't what it was. But there yep. are people who will be cheering for you to do well because you have to overcome something other guys don't. You're an underdog. And I think this would be the same thing. You would have a terribly, wonderfully popular player among the fans on your team. If you if you were to draft this guy, I just don't know what they're going to do with him because they don't like trying new things. But boy, I think he would be a great opportunity for some team to take a take a chance on. If if and again, if he can play, I'm not an NFL scout. I'm not an NFL general manager. I haven't watched every one of his game films. But I'd love to be in a room once they do. If he is a guy that is other than the hand, is every bit as good as the other guys they're looking at. I would love to be in the room to hear what those discussions are like. Wasn't it George Blanda that only had part of a foot? And he was a kicker. No, it wasn't George Blanda. It was another guy who kicked for the New England, the New Orleans Saints, and he held the record for a long time. He had a specially made boot, and he kicked right with the toe. It was a flat toe, and he only had half his foot. Huh. I think it was, it, it was an accident of some kind. And I'll tell you, those who have lost part of their foot to lawnmower accidents tend to be among the brightest people on the planet. Says the radio host who lost two toes to a lawnmower accident when he was a child. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> that's, I, I can't think of anything good, so. <laughs> that, that's another story for another day. <laughs> You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Last week, Don, I wrote a piece in the spec. We had uh, Laura Fortino on 
here on the show, silver medalist for Canada, defenseman for Canada's Olympic team, had her on the show, wrote a piece in the paper. And I got to be honest with you, I was surprised with some of the response, some of the response, not all, some, because there were a number of people who said the fact that she was not happy with her silver medal, and it took her a few days to really be able to look at it because it was painful for her. There were a number of people that said, see, that's just poor sportsmanship and, and she should be very happy with the silver medal and it's, you know, sore loser and all that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't see that at all. That's not how I think about this at all. But before I get into it, what's your thought on that? Well, I, first thing I'd want her to do is she's dead on. She didn't go to get a silver medal. She went to get gold. And when you go to get something and you, you're competitive in nature and you're playing a team sport and the expectations are, the, the expectations weren't that it was theirs to lose. I mean, them, Canada and the U.S. battle it out hard all the time. It's not a gimme putt for them. But she went to win that thing. And she is more than entitled to be a little disappointed wearing a silver medal. It's the people that come up and offer an opinion, and you look at them and say, when was the last time you competed or won anything on a team sport? Because if they didn't, I don't care what they think. I what I Really, go away. Well, what I, what I found very surprising about mm. this is, do we not, we're, as a country, we are spending a lot of money now on own the podium. We're spending a lot of money on doing well. I don't, I don't want to anymore... Unlike in the old days, I don't really want to be sending Olympians over there to finish 27th and say, yeah, but I tried hard. We used to do that, and that was fine with us. Well, now, it used to be personally, it used to be acceptable when somebody was 17th and they were ecstatic talking to Brian Williams because it was a personal best. And now we have a we have set a different standard, right. and it we, doesn't mean that in we go to win a bunch. It doesn't mean that in sports in general that if you don't win, you can't be satisfied. If if I look, if you and I go out and play tennis for fun out in the public park somewhere, if you beat me, I'm not going to throw my racket and stomp off the court. But I'm not a person who has poured four years into that right. particular match. If we said today, Don, in four years we're going to meet. And play tennis, and the winner pays, and the loser gives the other guy a hundred thousand dollars. I'm not going to be happy if I lose. If I've got, if I'm preparing for this for four years and I lose, I'm not going to be thrilled with it. Well, and gonna, I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't think I should be expected to be thrilled with it. If we're going to do that. I'm going to find Tanya Harding's old boyfriend. <laughs> the fact is, I just, I was surprised that there were people, and it wasn't just about her. It was about. Uh, LaRock, who took the silver medal off, and others. And there was just this sense, we want, apparently, we want our athletes to go over there and win, but if they don't win, be happy about not winning. And I don't, I don't know how you no, balance that. I don't know how, you either ask them to go and win, and you ask them to go and compete at the highest level, and if you compete at the highest level, the only way you can do that is by wanting to win. Yep. You either ask them to go there and win, or you ask them to go there and have fun. I don't think there's a middle ground between those two. I don't think we want the middle ground of mushy, let's spend millions of dollars to train our athletes, but expect nothing out of them. If you want them to have fun, send them to the Bahamas for a week. Cheaper. It would be. 
right? Rather than, but if you're going to go and win, you're, I mean, you're dead on about uh, 14-0. I, I, I don't blame her one bit. Um, her expectation was to win, and she's certainly entitled to be disappointed. When she's got kids and grandkids and everything else, and she talks about that Olympics, it'll be fonder memories, I think. Things soften up a little bit, but right now it's a bit tender. I mean, she spent four years planning to win another gold medal. Yeah. No, I, I, I was... And if she's over it now, I'm surprised. I'm not... I'd be bitter for a long time. That would... Uh, I'm not annoying. sure that she is. Yes, annoying I'm me. not. I'm not sure that she is. Um, that she is over it. I think. That, uh, in fact, I, I talked with her and Renata Fast and Sarah Nurse, who all three local women yep. played on the national team. You pour four women's hockey is unique in the sense that it's very much like. And this sounds like a weird thing to say. It's very much like the other Olympic sports. It's not men's hockey. NHL hockey, they have a Stanley Cup every year that they can yeah. play for. They make millions of dollars. Well, they have world championship every year. Yeah, but, but no one cares about that. They have the Stanley Cup, and they have their contracts, which pay them a very nice living. No, the, the women have world oh, championship. Yeah, the, right. yeah, but the, women's, the, the world championship is still not the Olympic gold medal no, game. And it's like a loser or a skeleton racer or a biathlete or someone who nobody pays, really, nobody pays all that much attention more in women's hockey, but nobody pays all that much attention for four years. But you get to the Olympics and suddenly you are on the stage. And everything you've done for four years is geared towards this one moment. So if the, if the, if, if we send, if Canada sends its NHL players and we don't win, people will be disappointed. There's no question about it. But I don't know that the guys on the ice will share the level of disappointment that the fans in the stands and across the country would have. They've got other things that will, they would be disappointed, but I don't know if it would match the level of disappointment of the fans. The women's hockey team would every bit and more match the disappointment of the fans. The, uh, the nurse, Sarah Nurse? Yes. You've talked to uh, the three of them. It would be, I, I, my expectation would be that the silver medal would have somewhat of a different meaning to Sarah Nurse than it does Laura Fortino. And I say that because uh, Sarah Nurse presumably will have another couple, maybe three more Olympics. Both of them. All three of them will. Well, Laura probably has another two at least. No, but, and but she's ahead of her, right? Yeah. And, and Renata and, as well. And, and And so Laura Fortino has won a gold medal. And knowing that you know, she's got probably two more chances. And Sarah Nurse, who won a silver medal on her first try, I just find that sometimes the younger ones, the younger athletes, view it a little bit differently and maybe aren't quite as heartbroken because they hadn't been there and won one before and know that they have more opportunities. You know, you don't know Laura Fortino's life plans, or perhaps you do. I, I certainly wouldn't suggest I do. Um, maybe... Maybe she's got one more Olympic in her. Maybe she plans on starting a family. Or you, you no, don't she, know what she it says is. she's committed for the next Olympics, so she's in for four years. And as I said, yeah, but that I, might be it. There might be well, one more, maybe. even if she's capable of going to. I'm just saying that once you've won one and you aren't starting your career, I think the hurt is more, and I think the disappointment is different than if it's your first crack at it. 
as we go to break, here's the other one. I think that many of the people, if I, if you ask the people who write in or call in or email in or whatever else or tweet, they've never played at that level. If they went for a job interview that they had been gearing up for and didn't get the job and the boss who did it said, yeah, but you were the runner up. I'm sorry, I can't give you the job, but you would have got it if Don had not come in and taken the job from you. I'm not sure that you're leaving that interview going, oh, you know, I feel great that I finished second. I just don't think that's the case. If you are at all competitive and you have something in your sights, probably if you don't get that thing that you've set out to do, if you were a, 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 a amateur runner who's decided they're going to do the around the bay race, and you get to 29 kilometers and suddenly your body gives out and you can't finish the 30th. I don't think you're saying, you know, I feel terrific. I got 20. No, you're saying, oh, I didn't do it. It's just that this is on a different level because this is under the spotlight that we hold it to a different standard and we expect some people do. It's anyway. a different perspective. It's, it's an interesting way to put it into perspective. Are you going to be happy to be the second best guy that applied to the, for the job? I mean, that's, that in real real world context is probably a better way to do it because you can't compare what they go through by not winning a gold medal. Very few people in the world can do that. And there's one other thing as we go to break, you know what the other one is? Is that do we really want to send to an Olympics a team of women who are saying, whatever, eh, we're just, we're going to do our best, but whatever. No, you, we are sending them to win and yes, we would like them and they were gracious. I mean, look, you can, you can argue about whether or not the one player, LaRock, taking her medal off her neck was good or bad or whatever. We can have that debate. But the fact is, I don't want to send a team over there that is going to say, eh, okay, I'm happy. I want to send a team. We wouldn't we wouldn't say that about the NHL guys, as I say. If they had lost, when they lost in um, Japan, in, uh, when Brendan Shanahan... Didn't pick Gretzky. When they didn't pick Gretzky for the shooter, they lost to Dominic Hashi. Inago. Inago, that's right. Inago. I, I don't <laughs> think we... I, I think everybody understood their hurt, and no one said they should have just been happy to be there. And they were going to get a chance at another medal and they should be satisfied. No, everybody was bummed. Anyway, I, to the people who, and, and to the people who wrote in, I just, I, I, I just don't understand. I don't understand that we don't want our athletes to be competitive. We do want our athletes to be competitive. We do. We're pa- love it or not. We are past the time of sending Olympic athletes to the Olympics, as Dawn says, to finish 29th and feel terrific about it. You can feel terrific. And if you're a first timer who's 17 years old and getting the experience, but when we have our elite athletes, we are sending them there to win. There are athletes we send to get experience and there are athletes we send to win. And the athletes we send to win, I want them to want to win and be bummed out if they don't win. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Toronto Blue Jays. Have Marcus Stroman hurt, Troy Tulowitzki hurt, Devin Travis is bound to get hurt. He's always hurt. The guy they got, uh, Randall Grychek, they got from St. Louis, is hurt. 
The a relief pitcher they just signed as a free agent couldn't pass his physical with Texas, but they signed him anyway. He's got a bit apparently of a wonky elbow. We're not even into the second week of spring training games yet. Mm-hmm. Do you? They're screwed. Well, I don't know if they're screwed, but I, I, I'm finding it hard this spring to muster a great sense of optimism. And you got the Yankees who have loaded up with Gene Carlos Stanton and a bunch of others. You got the Red Sox who've added. I, I'm finding it hard to get a lot of excitement about the Blue Jays this year. So, Early. So the Blue Jays needed all of their good players, some of which you've just talked about that aren't ready to go. They needed all their good players to have a really good year to have a chance. Yep. So two years ago, all their good players had exceptional years, and they made the playoffs. And then they bounced back, and everybody, a bunch of people have mediocre years, closer to what they would normally have, and they struggled. So nothing will be any different. The only thing that's different is they still need all those guys to be on top of their game, and you've listed some guys that won't be because they're going to be injured. And you've got Boston and New York, who you have to beat out, who are a lot better. So when I say they're screwed, I that's what I mean. There's two wild cards. It may not totally be, but right now... It doesn't look... It, well, it, as I say, it's there's two wild cards. So even if Boston or New York finishes second and takes that second wild, that first wild card, you're fine. But I just... I, I'm, I'm not seeing where this team is going to be able to be great. And in previous spring trainings, you at least could kind of hold that belief. I mean, 2015, not so much, but then they tra- made all those trades. 2016, beginning of the spring, you really thought they were going to be terrific, and they were. 2017, remember the pitching staff had been so good, the starting yep. pitching in the year before, and you thought, okay, if they do that again, well, they didn't do that again, and then a bunch of them got hurt. I, I I really want to believe that this is a summer that, again, we can see some winning baseball and a lot of winning baseball. I, I just, I'm really struggling to find it right now. Their biggest loss is Jerry Howarth. I would love to know. Now, Jerry Howarth, I've never met the man, never talked to him. However, everything that every human being has ever said about him is that he is a wonderful <laughs> person. There is no... There is nothing about him, apparently, that is fake. He is just a great guy. And so, but I do wonder, and this is this doesn't question his character or anything like nothing like that, but I do wonder if this team was looking like it was primed to win a World Series this year, if he might have held off on his retirement for a year. That, 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 that doesn't look bad on him. I just, you don't get as a, person involved in the media as a play-by-play person. You'll get many chances to call a champion. And I just wonder if he might have, but I think even he would have to look at this and go, they could, but it's going to take some kind of miracle. Well, I think, I mean, apparently it's his voice, but we're talking about the team, and I jumped us into the play-by-play guys. But um, he, here's what I would predict. If they look like they were all that, He'd have cut back on his schedule and done a limited. But stick around somehow. Yeah, right? Like I'm going to do most of the home games, um, limited road trips. I'm going to well, do you do 90. what Vin Scully did in his last year. I'm doing the home games. Yeah. Someone else can do the road games. I'll do the home games. And that's, not a, that's in no way a shot at Jerry Howarth. I just look at it and I think. 
that might be a marker saying he knows more than we do. That's my point. That's my point. If this was a team that you truly believed was going to roll and was going to be in the World Series, I really believe. Because his issue is, he says it's his voice. And I'm trusting, we all hope and trust and pray that that's the case, that there's not a health thing, that it was his voice that is just going. And if that's the case, and it's not that you are facing a present health crisis that you have to, if it's his voice, I really believe that he would have probably found a way to stick around. I I think he can see what the rest of us can see. This is a team that will require, by the looks of it, early in spring, a minor slash major miracle to be in the mix. I'm sure we'll be talking about this lots over the coming months. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.